right, good morning. If you are in third grade and below and you would like to head back to Children's Church, you can head back now. But if you want to stay here with us, that's totally fine. And so for the rest of us, we are going to be in the book of Lamentations. So if you open your Bible or Google or your iPad or whatever it is, open to the book of Lamentations. And if you're wondering where that is, it's right after the book of Jeremiah because it was likely written by the same guy. And so, uh, yeah, so Lamentations is where we're going to be. If you don't know where either of those are, just look in the table of contents. There's never any shame in looking at the table of contents to find a book where you don't know where it is. Uh, that's what it's for, there for. And so, um, so Lamentations. So we, if you have not been here, we've been walking through a series uh, called Until Our Faith is Sight in which we are looking at laments or lamenting. And, and like, how do we walk through this life in which we have a lot of suffering and grief and sadness uh, within our lives? And so until our faith is sight, me, the, I never said this. Why, we, why I named it that is just saying, what do we do now until what we believe becomes real here on earth? Not real, but becomes manifest here on earth. Like when Jesus returns, or we, don't know, we no longer need faith because he's literally here in front of us. But until that happens, what do we do? We lament. Um, and so, uh, so we've been, that's what we're looking at. So we're going to look at Lamentations this week. And, uh, and so before we begin, I want to tell you a little bit of context here. Oh, and a side note, we're going to go through the entire book today. So hold on, okay? Uh, but before we begin, I want to give you some context as to the book. And so in America, we have, I would say, most of us would agree, a pretty divided political culture, Right? So most of us, or many of us here, are on the religious right, and we are, you know, Republicans, and some of us here are, are on the compassionate left, and, uh, and we are all about being a Democrat and, and showing compassion. And, uh, and the reality is, is most of us get on Facebook, and then we try to chew each other's faces off on it. That's pretty much what we do. We are not alone in having a politically toxic culture. In fact, just as a side note, this is not new to America. It's been the way from the very beginning, okay? Just as a side note, everyone has always hated each other. Everyone's always had differing opinions. And that's just why you had the Federalists and Anti-Federalists and whatever it is. Uh, but now, we have a politically divided culture, but we are not alone. There are other, pl other times, other places in which the political culture was far worse. And so we're going to dive into one of those today. So I want to tell you some history. Because history is a lot of fun. I love history. If you hate history, that's a, it's only a couple paragraphs. But, but if you love it, it's really interesting, okay? So, go back in time machine with me. Back to, you know, 3,000 years ago in a, in a place called Jerusalem, okay? That's where we're going to be. Now, Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel. They had a couple kings, uh, David and Solomon, who were really pretty good. David was better than Solomon, but, you know, they were both kind of good kings. Well, after these guys passed away, there's some other kings came up after them who were less inclined to follow God. So, over time, God split their kingdom. And so, the northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah, and that's where Jerusalem was. So, the northern kingdom, they had their own kings, and they continued in this path, pathway of sin and rebellion, and the king didn't follow God. And so eventually, God just said, all right, guys, 
I gave you an opportunity. I'm done with you. Brought in Assyrians, wiped them out, carried them off as slaves. The southern kingdom lasted a little bit longer. But they actually followed the same pattern. So they had some kings who were not doing great. And so God said, okay, guys, listen, you had opportunity time after time after time. But because the sin of your fathers, the sin of the king, the sins of Manasseh, who was one of their kings, has brought this judgment upon you. And so now it's not going to go well for you. So let me fill you in on what actually happens at this point. Okay? So during that time, there were two superpowers. You had Babylon which was in Iraq, and then you had, the, you had Egypt, which was in Egypt, okay, the, back then, okay. So, Egypt had a pharaoh, which just means king, and Babylon had a king as well. So, they were the warring political superpowers of their day. They were the U.S. and China, just if, you know, we had real wars and not instead of trade wars, okay. So, that's what they're doing. Now, everyone, want, everyone wants control of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is super important because it is the center point or controls, whoever controls that region controls trade and everything, in, like going into, into northern Africa, going over into the Fertile Crescent and everything else over there. So Jerusalem's really important. These guys are battling over it. So because Judah sinned against God, God said, you guys are going to come under judgment. And so all of a sudden... These powers come in over Jerusalem. It's got really bright. These powers come in over Jerusalem, and they make, they make, make the king their vassal. What that means is the king has to collect taxes and send them to whoever the king is over him at that time. So for a lot of the time, he had to collect taxes from everyone and then send them to, to the king of Egypt to prove that he was, we were his subjects. Well, then the Babylonians would come in and take over, and then we would become his vassal state, or they would, not we, I'm not a Jew, but they would become his vassal state, and they'd have to pay taxes to the king of Babylon. So, that's kind of the this, this setting. Well, there was a king named Jehoiakim, and he was under Babylonian rule, but he was pro-Egypt. So, he rebelled against King Babylon, or the king of Babylon. Now, if you're the king of Babylon... Do you love that idea? No. What do you want to do? Go in and kill that guy. So he brings his army into town because this king of Jerusalem rebelled. He's rolling into town. Well, by the time he gets there, Jehoiakim had died. His 18-year-old son had been king for three months. Imagine you are 18 or your 18-year-old son, whichever one you want to envision, your king over the Judah all of a sudden, you see the greatest army in the world hiking towards your place. What do you think at that point? It's probably not going to go well for us. So, he surrenders immediately. He sees him coming, and he's 18. He's like, no, this is not, this, this is bad. He, so, he gets his underwear out, and makes a white, white flag, and he runs out. He's like, listen, listen, we surrender, okay? So, that happens. Well, then he comes, he becomes the vassal. He becomes the guy who's supposed to collect taxes for Babylon. That's his job. Well, because that his dad had because his dad had rebelled, he actually gets carried off as a slave. And the king of Babylon sets up his 20-year 20 21-year-old uncle as the new king. And says, "Okay, dude, he couldn't handle it. You're in charge." 
Oh, and the meanwhile, he carries off every noble person, everyone who has any means back to Babylon. So now he's left the poorest of the poor and the 21-year-old guy as their king and says, now you're the king over here. You continue to pay his taxes. Nine years later, he rebels. No idea why, but he rebels. Again, if you had to do this nine years ago to this region, you're pretty hacked off at this point. So the king of Babylon comes back into town. And he destroys everything. He comes in, he ransacks the entire town, like, like sets fire to all of Jerusalem, takes their temple, which is the pinnacle of their, of their religion, and completely destroys everything to where no stone was left on another one. So that's what he does. He comes in and burns the whole city, carries all the rest of the people back to Babylon, except for the poorest of the poorest of the poor. They're left there. Now their king's gone. Their, their people are gone. Their city is completely ransacked. Their temple is completely destroyed, which was the pinnacle of their relationship with God. The temple was a symbol of God's presence with them, and now that is completely gone. And then their city wall was completely destroyed. So now they have no protection, no God, no leaders, and that's where they're at. And they're just watching their city burn. And now Jeremiah is looking at this. And he's watched this political, war, this political thing happen in front of him over the past couple decades. And he's saying, this is not going well for my people. This is, this is like, this is not good. And now I've watched the city that I love, the temple that I love, the people that I love just be burned and killed and carried off as slaves. And that's where he's at. And so that is the setting for the book of Lamentations. And so here's, here's what we want to learn uh, from, from this. It's like we've been looking at laments for the past couple weeks, is that laments are not simply supposed to be prayers. Laments are supposed to be teachers. We're supposed to learn things from them. They are memorials of saying, hey, listen, this is a signpost. for." So C.S. Lewis said this. I don't know if I wrote this in here or not. Uh, I'm going to butcher this, but C.S. Lewis said something along the lines of, in the, in the problem of pain, is that God, God whispers to us in our, in our gladness, and he talks to us just in, among normal times, but then in our times of great pain, he shouts at us. And so when we are walking through the deepest valleys or walking through grief or walking through sadness, those are the times in which our eyes are most open to hear from God in which we can under, like we're turn, we turn to him and we look at him and we think about him. Those are the times in which we do it. And so laments are supposed to be our great teachers. And so Jeremiah wrote to Lamentations, and the point, the point was, yes, to grieve over what he's seeing now, but also to remind future generations of what has happened in the past. He's like, remember this. Look at what happened to us and learn from it. That's the point. And so I want to read. We're going to read starting in chapter 1, and I'm not kidding when I said we're going to go through the whole thing. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But we're going to look at it and get an overview of it. Because I want to learn five things from this, okay? Five things. So look at chapter 1, verse 1. And Jeremiah's looking over his city. And here's what he says, how she sits alone. The city once crowded with people. She who was great among the nations has become like a widow. The, princes among the, pro- uh, the princess among the provinces has been put to forced labor. She's now slaves. 
She weeps bitterly during the night with tears on her cheeks. There's no one to offer her comfort. No one from all her lovers, all her friends have betrayed her, and they have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile following affliction and harsh slavery. She lives among the nations but finds no place to rest. All her pursuers have, have overtaken her in narrow places. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to the appointed festivals. All her gates are deserted, her priests groan, her young women grieve, and she herself is bitter. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease, for the Lord has made her suffer because of her many transgressions. Her children have gone away as captives before the adversary. All the splendor has vanished from daughter Zion. That's another name for Jerusalem. Her leaders are like stags that find no pleasure. They stumble away exhausted before the hunter. Look down at verse 11. All her people groan while they search for bread. They have traded their precious belongings for food in order to stay alive. So the way that they overtook the city is they set up a, a two-year siege around it to where they wouldn't let any food come in or out. And, uh, and so... Uh, so for two years, they basically starved the residents of Jerusalem until a point in which everyone was completely weak, and they just opened the gates, and then they came in and completely destroyed the city. So, that, so they're here, and they're looking at their suffering, looking at their, their starvingness. I don't know how you say that. They're, they're, they're starving. And so they've traded their precious belongings for food in order to stay alive. Lord, look and see how I've become despised. Is, nothing, is this nothing to you? All you who pass by, look and see, is there any pain like mine which was dealt out to me, which the Lord made me suffer on the day of his burning anger? So let's pray uh, before we get into what we learned from this. So Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Lamentations, which is a signpost or a memorial for us to learn like from these people's experience, to learn from from, from their, their complete grief and sadness over the destruction of their city, of their people, of their nation. And I pray that we would, we would be able to learn from this. And so I pray that you would speak to us today, open our hearts and our minds to hear what you want to say to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So from these eight verses, what I want you to learn, number one, is that suffering is real. Suffering is real. And if you've been here the past two weeks, you'd say, yeah, we get that. We've talked about that for two weeks. But for some of us here, maybe we need to hear that, is that suffering is real. And you may be going through something, maybe you're going through hard times, and that's legitimate. That's legitimate. We go through incredibly hard times. And that does not always, sometimes it means for them it was judgment from God. But it doesn't always mean it was judgment from God. Sometimes we just endure suffering because we live in a broken world, which we're going to see here in a minute. And so I wanted you to, I want you to hear that, is that suffering's real, what you're going through is real, what you have gone through in the past, what you've worked through is legit, it's real. And it's okay to have experienced suffering. It's okay to have acknowledged the fact that you have experienced suffering, because he is here. He's lamenting over his city because of what they've all gone through, and that's a good thing, to bring it out. But why do pain and suffering exist? Why do they exist at all? Look at verse 5 again. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease, for the Lord 
has made her suffer because of her many transgressions. Her children have gone away as captives before the adversary. Look over at verse 8. Jerusalem has sinned grievously. Therefore, she has become an object of scorn. And then look over at verse 14. My transgressions have been formed into a yoke, fastened together by his hand. That's what they would put on an oxen and, and cause them to go and work. It's something that has enslaved him. It's fastened together by his hand, by God's hand. They have been placed on my neck, and the Lord has broken my strength. He has handed me over to those I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all the mighty men within me. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young warriors. The Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah like grapes in a wine press. And so, and so I want you to catch from this. Here's the second thing. We learn that suffering is real, suffering and pain are real, but why do they exist at all? Because a lot of times when we walk through these things, what's our predominant question? Why? Why am I enduring this? Why am I going through this? Why is this happening to me or to my kid or to my parents or to my, like, to my friend or to my church or to my school or whatever the thing may be? You're like Our predominant question is, why is this happening? And for them, it was God's judgment. But I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. That's not the main thing I want you to learn. The main thing I want you to learn of why this is happening is because sin has broken our world. Sin has broken our world. And so that means, that means some of us may suffer as a direct result of our actions, of, a, of, a, of an individual sinful act. Some of us may endure suffering because of that. Others of us, or those same people, like we can endure, we, we live a long life, complex life, other times we suffer, and it is not a direct result of a sinful act that we did. In fact, often, like, we, we just have things happen to us. Like, you, your sin did not, com- like, bring about your cancer. Or your sin did not bring about that car wreck. Unless you were texting, then that was on you. But, but, like, um, but like, so, like, sin has broken our world. Sin has broken our world. And so why, why is it this way? Like, why did this come about? And like, for them, their sin brought judgment upon them. Like, God said, listen, you're following this wrong path. You are, you are walking in unrighteousness. Therefore, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. But why is this the case at all? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. This is something that is probably familiar to many of us here, uh, but this is the story of Adam and Eve. And when they were uh, created, um, God gave them a couple things. He gave them a marriage. He said, listen, I want you to, I want you to live in this garden to where things are good. I want you to, uh, to follow me, have, have a relationship with me, commune with me. But then he also gave them a commandment, and he said, but there's a specific tree here in the garden that I don't want you to eat from. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so he gave them the choice. He gave them the opportunity to, to choose whether they would trust him or whether they would rebel and choose to be their own God. And so, and so that's where we're at in Genesis chapter 3. And so look at verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. 
And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So he's kind of bringing this questioning, and he's bringing in this questioning of, of like, can you really trust God into her heart? And the woman says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. And the servant said, no, you will not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Translation, here's what he said. No, that's not true. God's holding out on you. He doesn't have your best interest in heart. He's, in fact, deceiving you. But if you do what you want to do, if you decide to take this action and like kind of make the decision for yourself because you've got freedom, you've got autonomy, you can decide for yourself what's good. If you choose to do that, then guess what? You'll become like him. He's just trying to hold you back. That's what, that's what he says. Verse 6, and the woman saw that the tree was good for food. So she starts looking at it, and she's like, you know what? Maybe he's right. Maybe God really doesn't care about me. Maybe God doesn't love me. So she saw it was good for food and really pretty. It was really delightful to look at. And that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So he was just kind of there with her. He's like, yeah, she's hot, she's naked, I'll eat it, it's fine. And so uh, that's where she's at. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So all of a sudden, this act of rebellion hits them. They, they take a bite, and they're like, wait a second. That was a mistake. All of a sudden, everything opens up, and they realize, no, that was, that was, that was terrible. I, just didn't, I did something wrong. So what do they try to do? They try to cover themselves up. So they try to, like, they realize, oh, no, we're naked. This is not good. So they try to, like, cover themselves up. They cover their sin up. And they, then all of a sudden they start blaming each other. And, and then God comes. And he's like, hey, wait, who told you you were naked? And uh, what are you doing? And all of a sudden the man's like, hey, listen, it was that woman you gave me. She was the one who, like, the woman that you gave me. So, like, he's blaming her and God. And then she's like, well, no, it wasn't me. It was a serpent. And then so he turns to the serpent. But I want you to catch, here's what I, the point, here's what I want you to catch. Look what happens to the world as a result of their rebellion to God. Look at verse 16. And he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains, and you will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So what he does here, he's give her, he gives her two things that all of a sudden are going to make her life incredibly difficult. He says, raising your kids is going to be painful. Yes, labor is difficult and painful. Not like, not like I know, but, you know, I've seen it. But, but like, yes, labor is, is difficult and painful. But painfulness with raising kids doesn't end when you have your baby in the hospital, does it? No. Like, all of a sudden, there's a, there's a mom thing. On, and I'm sure I saw it on someone's Instagram. It's like, Instagram's like, like no, like, raising kids is like, like having your heart outside of your body nonstop. That's like what raising kids is like. It's like having your kid go off to school and like go off to go off to work and like go off and get married and all of a sudden you're never going to see them again. And like, and so like, that's like, that's like what it is like to raise kids. And God says, listen, this is going to be pretty painful now for you. Moms, have you heard of mom guilt? 
That's a result of the fall. The fact that you're always guilty, you always feel guilty about whether you're with your kid or if you give them too much attention. Are you not giving them enough attention? Have I held them enough today? Have I not held them enough today? Is the food good? Am I giving them enough variety of food? Is the variety of food good enough or not? I don't know. Am I on my phone too much? Probably. And so, like, you start going through all of this mom guilt. Mom guilt is a result of the fall. That's part of raising kids, part of the painfulness of it. But then look what else. You're, you're also, your relationship with your husband is going to be strained, or men. All of a sudden, you're not going to have this good, this good, like, relationship with men in which you guys correspond to one another in beautiful ways in which you are, like, you benefit and, like, from each other's strengths. Men and women are different. It was designed, we were designed to be that way. We were designed to correspond and to, and to create, like, be strong in areas that the other one's not. For example, for me, I can't remember, I can't remember if my kid has a doctor appointment ever again. I don't know. Dara does. She can tell you the next 40, you know? And so, like, there are strengths, there are strengths that women have that guys don't have, and vice versa. There are strengths that men have that women don't have. And we are made to correspond, but what, 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 what happens here, he says, that relationship is now going to be strained. Your desire is going to be for him, but guess what? He is going to rule over you. Their act of rebellion created this, created this tension to where now we have a Me Too world in which women are coming, before, coming, coming up all the time and saying, hey, listen, this man did this to me. You know where that came from? Rebellion in Genesis chapter 3, this strained relationship where men think they have the opportunity to rule and control and do whatever they want because they're stronger most of the time. There are women who are stronger than me. But you know what I'm saying. So, like, so that's, that's a result of the fall. But look what he does to the men. Look what he says. Verse 17. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat of the, all the plants of the field, and you will uh, eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. What's a predominant concern for most men? Your job, right? Your work, what you do. But guess why you have tension at work now with other people at work? or why you've been passed up for a promotion, or why working is just hard. It's hard going to work day in and day out. And you got two weeks on vacation, then one of them you spent on a mission trip here, so now you just got one week of vacation. And so like, and so like, you, like why is work hard? Because of the fall. And so what happened is sin has broken our world and messed up relationships, messed up our, our like, our, our just relationships. What am I trying to say here? I don't know. Messed up our just relationships with one another. Messed up our roles. He's messed up like our like our what we do just day in and day out. It's messed up our world to where now we have things like sicknesses in the world. We have things like broken relationships in the world. We have things like dying marriages in the world. We have things like cancer or like car wrecks or like whatever the thing may be for you. We have that in the world as a result of the fall because we rebelled against a holy God and we said, we don't want you to be our God. We want to be our God. And so he said, okay, and you can have it your way. That's what he did. But he has not left us alone. I want you to see this. 
Because as Jeremiah is looking in the middle of this broken city back in Lamentations, he turns in chapter 3 and says a poem to God. It's a prayer. It's a prayer and also something he's just reciting to himself. And I want you to catch this. Chapter 3, verse 22. is where we're going to be. Verse 22 to 33. Catch what he does here. He's looking over the city. He's crying out to God. He says, this is broken. This world is broken. It's because of me. Like, like I have this experience that is just horrible. It may be my fault. It may not be my fault, but I'm still enduring it. And here's what he says. He says, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. For his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will put my hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is still young. Let him sit alone and be silent, for God has disciplined him. Let him put his mouth to the dust. Perhaps there is still hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him. Let him be filled with disgrace, for the Lord will not reject us forever. Even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion according to the abundance of his faithful love. For he does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. Did you catch what he's doing there? What he was saying, what he was doing, he was, he was reciting something to himself. In the middle of looking at this broken city, this broken life, this broken relationship, he's looking and he's reciting something saying, I know what's true, even though it doesn't feel this way right now. And so I'm going to tell myself about Jesus for us, for the Christian. That's what, that's what call is. He says, I'm going to tell myself about God and what I know to be true about God. I'm going to recite it to myself that way. It goes into my heart and I can actually believe it and trust him. He's reciting to the gospel to himself. That's what he's doing. He says, listen, I know uh, the Lord's faithful love. Because of that, we do not perish. Like, we, eternally, we're not, we're not going to go to hell forever. It's like, eternally, I'm not lost forever. I know that in the midst of my sadness, in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my pain, I have a hope because of what God has proven that he, that he loves me. God's proven he loves me. That's what he's saying here. He's like, his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, God, as he's looking over this broken city. He's reciting the gospel to himself and saying, I can trust God because he has shown me he loves me. He proved it to me through the cross. Look at verse 31 again. It says, for the Lord will not reject us forever. Even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion. The point is not to, like, to kill them and then to get them away from there and just move them from his sight. The point is to teach them to bring judgment into their life, to reset their hearts, to turn it back towards him, because that's for their good. That was the point of this. He says, even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion according to the abundance of his faithful love, for he does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. God doesn't enjoy this. He proved that he loved him. So here's the call for us. Remember the gospel. In the middle of your suffering, in the middle of your grief, remember the gospel. Because in that, God proved 
that he cares about you at great cost unto himself. Jesus proved it through his own death on a cross. That's how he proved how much he loves you and cares about you and what's happening in your life. And so what he's saying is, I'm going to remember that and I'm going to trust you. That's what he's saying. But look at verse 40. Let us examine and probe our ways and turn back to the Lord. That's what he says. Look what that makes him do. Look what that makes him do. Look at, look at chapter 4, verse 1. All of a sudden, he, it's like, and many of us have experienced this. You go through waves, right? When you're experiencing grief or sadness, you go through waves, even in a, on the same day, in which you are, you are up on a peak, and you're like, man, I can get through this. I can trust God. And then all of a sudden, you start dwelling, and you start to get down again. You start to get sad and angry, and then like you, over time, you kind of get back up again. And you're like, man, I can remember God. God, I want to trust you. And then all of a sudden, the next day, you wake up, and you're just sad again. And they're just gonna, you just go through a roller coaster like that. Well, that's what he's doing here. Look what probing their ways and thinking about where they're at with God causes him to do. He starts, he starts looking at his city again. And he gets super sad again. And look at verse 1, how the gold in the city has become tarnished. The fine gold became dull. The stones of the temple lie scattered at the head of every street. You know what this causes him to do? You know what suffering brings out in our lives? Suffering and grief in sad times exposes our idols. That's what it's doing for them. So he's saying, I'm going to recite the gospel to myself, but as I assess my life, I'm going to think about what do I need to do? Like, what's happening here? And so for him, he starts walking through these idols that he had or that the city had that are being exposed in this moment because all of a sudden he's looking, and what is he looking at? How the gold in the city, this, this financial prosperity or financial security that they had, all of a sudden that's gone. And so idols are exposed because when you're shaken through grief or sadness or hard times or whatever the thing may be, when you're shaken... What comes out of you? What comes out of you? It reveals where your heart's at. What comes out of you when you're shaken reveals where your heart is. And so when he's being shaken here, all of a sudden, all these idols that they had culturally are coming out and saying, we valued this gold, we valued this, this stuff, this financial security, that all of a sudden when it's taken away from him, he's crushed. Look at, look at verse 2. Zion's precious children, once worth, worth their weight in pure gold, how they, regarded, uh, as not, how they are regarded as clay jars, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young, but my dear people have become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. So they're, they're not nursing their babies anymore because they're hungry, and, and they're not giving their food to their kids anymore. Um, and the nursing baby's tongue clings to the roof of its mouth from thirst. Infants beg for food, but no one gives them any. Those who used to eat delicacies are destitute in the streets, and those who are, were reared in purple garments huddle in trash heaps. Here's a second idol that was exposed in them as they're assessing their lives. Personal comfort. Personal comfort and pleasures. All of a sudden, 
these things in their hearts where they, like, they were trying to follow God, but really, like, if you ask them to get out of their comfort zone or you ask them to give up something or sacrifice something, all of a sudden, it became less of a cool idea. But all of a sudden, now when these pleasures are ripped out of them, they no longer have them anymore. These idols are being exposed before them. Here's the last one. Here's the last one, and we'll almost be done. Verse 20. And the Lord's anointed, the king, the breath of our life was captured in their traps. We had said about him, we will live under his protection among the nations. All of a sudden, he's gone. He was carried off as a slave. And now this man that they venerated, this man that they valued, and they thought, this is the person that's going to protect us. This is the person we're going to follow. This is the person that we can hold. Like he can, he can protect our lives. All of a sudden, he's ripped out of their life, and now they're left aimless because their idol of this king is, is gone. And so in this, what do they recognize? Their financial security is gone. Their pleasures are gone. And now this person they idolize is gone. And so these things are being exposed before them. And for some of us, maybe our suffering is exposing things in our hearts that we don't like. Maybe it's, an ex- it's exposing an idol within us. Maybe your idol is your kid. Maybe your, your idol was this car. Maybe your idol was this position at work. Maybe your idol was, was be getting on stage or being in front of people and having people notice you and think you're cool. And all of a sudden, when these things are ripped out of your life, you can't live anymore. That is grace from God because he is revealing things to you. He is teaching you through suffering that you are running after things that are not him. And in the end, it'll always be a train wreck. That's what he's saying. Because when you value things other than me, it will never be good for you. So because I'm the thing you need to value. And maybe that's what he's saying. But here's the last thing that will be done. Look at chapter 5. Because he offers a, a prayer to God. Look, he says in verse 1, he says, Lord, remember what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. And look down at verse 20. Why do you continually forget us? Abandon us for our entire lives. Lord, bring us back to yourself so we may return. Renew our days as the former times. Unless you have completely rejected us and are intensely angry with us. That's how the entire book ends. Here's what I want you to learn from that. Is that while we live here, our call is to wait on Jesus. This book is not tied up with a bow in which all of a sudden God magically puts the city back together, people come back, he erases their sadness, or he just gives them, you know, food or whatever it is. Like, no, no, he's still sitting there in the middle of this crumbling life, this crumbling city, and all of a sudden he turns to God and he says, God, I need you. And the lesson God is trying to teach him is that I want you to wait on me. I want you to have hope in me. And and now catch this. This is the end point of the gospel. This is the end point of the gospel. When you believed in Jesus, you were saved for something, from sin for something. But to live for Jesus now, but is this life all there is? No. One day, Jesus is going to return to this earth and make everything wrong right. He bought the right to make everything right when when he died. And so that is the end point of the gospel. And so while we sit here now, we wait on him.
That's the call. That's the call. And so while we wait for him now, we hope. That is what it means to have faith in Jesus, is that you hope he will return one day for you. That's the gospel. That's what you believed in. You said, I'm going to follow you now on the hope that you will return for me one day. And he said, I will. That's where we're at. And so today, as the band comes up, where are you at? Maybe you need to sit there and pray to God and just allow these idols in your hearts to be exposed. Maybe you need to turn to him and say, God, I want to remember the gospel. Help me to recite that to myself now to remember how you love me and how you care for me. Or maybe some of us need to just sit here and say, God, I want to patiently wait on you. Help me to put my faith, my hope in you. Cast all this upon you and say, God, I am trusting you to come and make all things right. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you're at. But you do. And so you take this opportunity to assess and to pray to him. And so if you need prayer, I'll be, I'll be sitting over here on the side. And so you can come find me. But maybe you just need to be by yourself and just pray. Or just think. So you do what you need to do. So as the band plays, you respond.